This isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? What do you mean? Did Caesar live here? Um, no. I don't think so. I went to Vegas last weekend. Pretty crazy. Vegas, baby! Vegas! Gentlemen, welcome to Las Vegas. Why don't you give me half the money you were gonna bet? Then we'll go out back, I'll kick you in the nuts, and we'll call it a day! Some guys just can't handle Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 18 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm happy to be your host for this podcast journey to my favorite city on the planet, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Let's get started with a few bits of housekeeping. First off, I want to say hi to Alex and Lisa, aka Bombs Bits, on Twitter, who were kind enough to tweet to me this past week. They were in Vegas enjoying a lovely vacation, and after listening to my recommendations in episode number one of the podcast, decided to take in the National Atomic Testing Museum, which they called a great hidden gem. Thanks for reaching out, guys, and thanks for listening to the show. Hope you had a fantastic rest of your trip. Secondly, thanks to everyone who's been taking the time to do the audience survey up on the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. If you've got five free minutes and you want to share your thoughts and opinions on the podcast, please do so. I want your feedback, whether it's good or bad, so that I can do my best to make your podcast listening experience more enjoyable. And while you're on the website, check out the Jeff Does Vegas patron program. For as little as $1 a month, you can pledge your support on either Patreon or Podbean and have access to exclusive patron-only content, including early access to new episodes, show and interview archives, and stripped-down versions of episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you're not already doing it, be sure to give me a follow on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast absolutely free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and anywhere else you get your podcasts so you'll know the instant a new episode is uploaded. All right, enough of the housekeeping. Let's get things going. Before we dive into this episode of the podcast, it's time to get you up to speed on what's happening in Sin City with Vegas news you can use. The Little White Chapel has been a fixture in Las Vegas since 1951. The landmark has been immortalized in countless TV series and films and has been the host for several celebrity weddings, including the likes of Bruce Willis and Demi Moore, Eva Longoria and Tyler Christopher, Pamela Anderson and Rick Salomon, and Britney Spears and Jason Allen Alexander. All in all, over one million couples have tied the knot there since its opening, and now it's selling for $12 million. Charlotte Richards, who's owned and operated the chapel for 68 years, has decided to slow down and let someone else take over. In a recent interview, Richards says she's ready for another hopeless romantic to carry on with the chapel's legacy. The agent who's managing the sale thinks the $12 million is a bargain, considering the chapel sits on one acre of land in South Las Vegas Boulevard and there's property nearby valued at roughly $30 million per acre. Apparently, several interested parties from all around the world have already reached out with potential offers. And speaking of big sales, this news coming from several sources, the Cosmopolitan is on the market. 
The Blackstone Group bought the resort back in 2014, sunk a ton of money into refurbishing the rooms, the restaurants, and the rest of the property, and are now apparently looking to flip it. There's lots of potential buyers out there, including MGM Resorts, who could fill the gap nicely on the west side of the strip between Bellagio and Aria. There's also been talk that the group that currently owns the Hard Rock brand have been looking for a property on the strip now that the existing Hard Rock off the strip is slated to become the Virgin Las Vegas Hotel in 2020. And I simultaneously love this person and hate this person at the same time. An Arizona native hit the jackpot big time at Sunset Station Casino a little over a week ago. On Sunday, April the 14th, a hotel guest was playing IGT's Mega Bucks Triple Red Hot 7 slot machine when they won, get this, $13,154,723. They started playing at around 8.30 in the morning after inserting $40 worth of cash, and within two minutes of playing the max bet of $3, they hit the $13.1 million jackpot. The winner wishes to stay anonymous. And that's Vegas news you can use. On to the show. My guest for this episode of the podcast is John D. Domenico. John is a Vegas-based actor and performer who specializes in character impersonations. He does this on stage, on TV, in film, and at corporate conferences. He's got a roster of about 30 different characters he portrays, including Dr. Phil, Austin Powers, Dr. Evil, Guy Fieri, Ozzy Osbourne, Jay Leno, and many, many others. However, it's John's portrayal of the current president of the United States of America that's keeping him extremely busy right now. There's a very good chance that you've seen John as Donald Trump in one of his many recent appearances on Fox News, late night talk shows, online with his Facebook watch show, The Trump Show, or in his new streaming special on Amazon Prime, Fake News, A Trump Story. John is also the voice of Donald Trump in Slate.com's Trumpcast, where he reads Trump tweets. John was kind enough to invite me to his home in Las Vegas so that we could sit down and talk. He took me around his place and I got to see, as he calls it, the operation. John showed me his loadout room where he preps and packs everything he needs for an appearance, such as wardrobe, wigs, and makeup. He showed me his voiceover booth where he records Trump tweets. And I got to see John's White House press room, complete with pillars, podium, and presidential seal. And I got to meet his assistant, Madison, who helps him keep everything straight. I got to see firsthand exactly what goes into what he does. As he put it, it's not just a case of showing up somewhere and being Donald Trump or any of the other characters he portrays. It's a lot of work. Honestly, way more than I ever could have imagined. John and I talked about his start in acting and character work. We talked about the changing landscape of comedy, his charity work, and his first gig headlining on the Vegas Strip in Esther Goldberg's totally outrageous brunch at the SLS. And of course, when you're talking to the best Trump impersonator in the world, you have to talk a bit of politics as well. I hope you enjoy my chat with John D. Domenico. All right, well, first of all, John, I just want to say thank you. For, oh, you're welcome. For taking the time. This is... Uh, <laughs> 
this is awesome. I really appreciate you inviting me into uh, to the wit- inner sanctum, the inner sanctum <laughs> behind the curtain, if you will, witnessing the uh, the operation. It's uh, a very cool little setup. Um, I want to start with the 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 John D. Domenico story. Where did you start? How did you start? When did you start? You know, I mean, the, the you've been acting pretty much your entire yeah. life. I grew up in a row home neighborhood in outside of Philadelphia, Ambler, Pennsylvania. And it's if you ever went to Ambler, it looks like South Philly had been towed out of Philadelphia and dropped in this town, Ambler, right. Pennsylvania, which is the asbestos capital of the world. Um, <laughs> it's no joke. The keys be in Madison. Uh, so, um, but in my neighborhood uh, in the late 60s, uh, before air conditioning and, uh, you know, obviously television was very popular. I had a severe speech impediment. But for some reason, when I did voices, Humphrey Bogart, um, um, James Cagney, Henry Fonda, Ed Sullivan, it circumvented the speech impediment. And my neighbors were just impressed with this precocious kid who, you know, would go out and perform for them. And so I got a lot of affirmation performing and laughs. I love to make people laugh to this day. And that just had me keep going and going and going. And by the time I got into first grade, they tested me and they, you know, I obviously had a real speech impediment. So for the next eight years, I did speech therapy for two times a week for eight years. Oh, wow. So that was a big help. And then when I got out of high school and actually once I got out of college and I started pursuing acting, I had to go back to get accent reduction because my speech therapist was from Philly. <laughs> so I had all the bad mannerisms of being like home, alone, phone, hoagie, which is great for Dr. Evil. Right. You know, yeah. hello. You know, I'm home alone with my laser, which worked perfectly <laughs> for that character, but not so much for auditions for theater in New York City. Yeah. Because I auditioned one time for a play and I said I'll be home later and the guy said stop 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 he goes I don't know where you're from it's either Philadelphia or Baltimore but he goes you cannot have that accent if you want to be an actor <laughs> so I went and I had accent reduction done so I um but I was I, I had a plan I was going to be an actor no one in my family was an actor and my plan was I was going to be a copywriter in Philadelphia build my book then move to New York, have an income, and pursue acting up there. Well, that that never happened. So I started in Philadelphia, hated having a nine-to-five job, mm-hmm. being in an office. I found it actually being very unproductive. But I had joined an improv group in Philadelphia and started doing stand-up. And a friend of mine, Joey Perillo, whose birthday happens to be today, he, um, he introduced me to doing corporate work. Mm-hmm. Because I said to him at one time at a Christmas party, I need a job. He goes, you don't need a job. You're an actor. You need work. And it's a very fine distinction. You need work. You need yeah. work. You need, it's, it's gap work to get you to the next gig. And it was corporate work. And I started doing corporate work. And I just was like a fish to water doing it. And I, because I do so many characters. And back then it was Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx and this character and that character. And over time, one character would drop out and I would start a new character and people would start calling me and saying, Hey, are you doing this character yet? Can you do this character? And I thought I could, but yeah, absolutely. I'll put the costume together. So that's how I kept myself working and kept pursuing work in Philadelphia and New York. It was also what happened with, with Trump. I actually had an interest in Trump, 
But I got a call one day in 2004, and someone said, are you doing Trump yet? Because you do everybody. And I said, no, but give me a couple of hours. And at that time, in 2004, I did some quick research, and I found he was in my genetic range, and then went to that particular audition, and that was it. So you I, you mentioned about doing the um, getting the call, and somebody would ask you, you know, do you do a character? And I know a few actors that have said, if somebody asks you if you can do something, you say yes, regardless. You know, can you ride a horse? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But you can't, you can fake riding a horse. You can't fake the voice. <laughs> you know what I mean? If the voice is not in your genetic range, um, like Liam Nielsen, I, you know, that's in my genetic range. Like, wow, like, you know, Chris Walken mm-hmm. is in my genetic range, you know, but certain people aren't. They're either too high or they're too low okay and so you just have to find them in fact somebody messaged me last night and said hey can you do um who's the guy just from Infowars? he just got in a lot of trouble oh uh, uh is that alex jones alex jones yeah and i was like oh i can do him because he's got I, and that's not the voice folks <laughs> <laughs> call came in last night um <laughs> still but, working on but it. i know that he's very gravelly when he gets very upset he gets very angry you know so I thought, oh, that's well within my range. Yeah. So because I've learned because I've actually said I could early on, I said I could do somebody. And when they push came to I was like, I really can't do this guy's voice. <laughs> mm, but I can ride a horse so or shoot a gun, whatever you need. Whatever you need. Yeah, tie in. knots. Who was the, the first character that you did that really kind of blew up for you? Even professionally or? It, 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 professionally or, you know, just for fun. Just for fun. They, I used to do Groucho, and I can still remember like my fifth or sixth grade teacher was just like, Who is this kid? Like doing adult double entendres. I didn't even know what I was saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? But she was like, What the heck? And I remember her taking me around to all the other teachers because yeah. I came in on Halloween as Groucho doing the voice. Right. And she said, oh, hold on. So she like took me to the principal's office and then took me to the teacher's lounge. And I remember thinking, like, Wow, like, just because I'm doing this voice, I'm getting like special access. Cause you know, when you're in a teacher's lounge when yeah. you're like in sixth, fifth, sixth grade, it's like it's like the it's like the platinum spa. Yeah. You know, like, hey, what's going on here? Is a soda machine? There's a couch? <laughs> what's you know? So that's that I can still plainly remember that. But my neighbors loved um my neighbors loved Ed Sullivan. You know, now right here in our shoe. You know, because this is a time you're still alive, you know. <laughs> Five-year-old. Now we have the fabulous Garbaccio brothers and the Girl Scout Troop 625. Girls, stand up and show us your cookies. Uh, <laughs> which was not, not as material as mine. I wasn't writing anything. It was all John Biner. And, yeah. You know, uh, and, and the first album I ended up buying was David Fry's Nixon, A Four-Year Fantasy. Or I might be mangling the title, but it was, it was the first thing I ever bought. Second thing I bought was... was um, uh, um, oh my God! The comedian, the long, the, the hippie oh, dippy uh, weather. Carlin. Carlin. Yeah. Was take off and put ons, which was a sketch album. It mm-hmm. was not a stand up material, and I learned really how to write sketches from that because his structures were perfect. He right. Would do the news. He would do a game show. He would do this, and it was when I went on to be in a comedy troupe. It, it really helped me. It was like the foundation between David Fry's stand up material. Um, which is actually very sketchy, uh, and uh, Carlin's sketch material, which he was never really, that wasn't really attributed to him. Mm-hmm. It was uh, his stand-up stuff. It was really giving a great foundation. Yeah. 
And so what was the first character that you did that was, you know, professionally that really oh, professionally? I, well, I remember the movers in my neighborhood. Uh, I did some voices for them, but I probably did. It was probably I want to say Chaplin. Uh-huh. I did an event in Philadelphia. Yeah, you know, which is amazing when you think about it. They did these things. It was um, they call them First Friday now, but it was something for Philadelphia where Philadelphia was really trying to open the city up because it was like a suitcase town. People would be finished work and they would hit hit the road, and it was really to get people stay in town, go to the restaurants. So we did multiple characters, and then within a year or two. I, this was, I was out of college in 86 and then around 87, 88, I started in Atlantic because I was already doing these characters, Mm -hmm. but I got hired in Atlantic City at uh, Trop World, which was Tropicana, where all I did was characters and I got paid, it was a one year, it was two six month contracts, essentially it was one year doing characters at this adult amusement pier. And it was it was like working out. It was like going to school every day. And what characters work and what characters didn't. And I would say to the entertainment director, I'd like to introduce a new character. So I would introduce, um, uh, you know, like an old guy who was who was a Diamond Club member of the of the Tropicana Hotel. Why why is the buffet line so long? I wa- I want to eat now. And they were like, that's hilarious. So and I would do Columbo and I would do Groucho and I would do it was just, it was great. It was a great. Because you had to do it like six, seven hours a day. Mm-hmm. So you really perfected the characters. And as far as developing characters, what's what's your process like uh, for the impersonation characters? You're, you know, how that's that's you, you could probably teach a master class probably in, in, in yeah. developing, you know, from start to finish, how to sort of create that character and yeah. make it your own. I the way I look at it is because so much of my work is corporate. I look at a, you know, like. Wow, like, you know, I'll use Guy Fieri. Wow, this guy came out of nowhere. And physically, he's close to me. And he stands out, you know, because he's got the, the, the platinum, uh, the, the dyed hair and the glasses and the bling and the this and the that. And then, like, you, you listen to his voice, baby. You know, I'm driving the bus to Flavortown, baby. Mm, love, peace, and taco grease. You know, and, like, check out the physicality of him. And I was just thinking... Wow, I wonder if this guy is going to break through. He's kind of interesting. And then he got Minute to Win It. Uh And I think it ran for two seasons on NBC. And that put him to the national level. There's so many components now to doing a character because I obviously have to be physically close to them. I need to sound like them. The wigs and things like that I can have made. But they have to be at a level where people recognize who they are. Right. Because one of the things I'm dealing with now, you know, I mentioned Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx. When I was a kid growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, my cultural history went back to the turn of the century, to the silent era. I knew who Chaplin was. I knew who Buster Keaton was. I knew who Harold Lloyd was. I knew who all those guys were because I love them. And, you know, I'd come home from school and there would be a, be a, a special about that or there would be uh, the Million Dollar Movie and it was Humphrey Bogart in... Uh, these Desperate Hours, which was the inspiration for uh, the Bruce Willis film, um, Nakatomi Plaza. Um, oh, Die Hard. Yeah. Die Hard. So all these things so really informed me about filmmaking and, you know, entertainment culture and things like that. So it was like 100. My cultural history was 100 years old. Well, now cultural history in this country is maybe two weeks. Yes. <laughs> you have my nieces and nephews who are in their 20s. They don't even watch linear television. 
Yeah. And they're not big moviegoers because they don't need to be. Right. So, and then you have Netflix and then you have uh, Snapchat and then you have Instagram and then you have YouTube and then you have, you have this thing where it's so fractionalized. There's very few characters that are breaking through, mm-hmm. you know? And for me, I'm lucky with Trump in that he's kind of a brand crusher. He cuts across everything. Everyone knows who he is. And, you know, luckily I started doing him back in 2004. But the thing now is, because people call me all the time, like, who are you working on? Who are you working on? I'm like, you tell me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Rich Little's still doing his act from 40 years ago. Yeah. But I don't have, I mean, for what I do, I need new characters. There's nobody in the news world. There's nobody in pop culture. M- movie stars are so milk toast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's very interesting because uh, there's just there's you know and Trump's literally sucking the oxygen out of pop culture. <laughs> right. So I, I would you know I people ask me all the time and I I don't know who to do because there's no one really standing out. If I'm doing a corporate event. They're not necessarily. If you're, you're 35, you may not know who that person is. Or if I'm doing a comedy club audience. If 50% of the audience doesn't know who I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You got to have a buy-in at some level. Yeah. Like you said, you bring up a great point as far as the the pop culture and like when it, it pains me to realize that Austin Powers is 20 years ago, yeah. 21 years ago. Yeah. 97. <laughs> so, yeah. wow. You yeah. Know? So, and, I mean. It's a brilliant character. Yeah. And I mean, so a character like that is right in my wheelhouse as a 43-year-old who, right. you know, loved that movie and watched it a bajillion times. So I can see how going into, like you say, going into a corporate event and doing it 20 years ago, some of those new reps, they, they don't know. Right. Right. <laughs> and now, and actually, I'm actually doing him at the Bacardi meeting, but when we were sit to, sitting down and going over... Um, the audience, I always say, what's the demographic of the audience? And mm-hmm. they said, well, they're distributors and they're mid mid to late 40s. And I was like, perfect. Yeah. It gives me a lot of, you know, that was great. They would know who these these characters are because I either go in and do it as myself or the characters, which is which I love. I, I love that I can I can do that. So, um, but to go back to your initial question, there's like just a criteria. Mm-hmm. There's stuff I do for myself. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like doing rolling voices around in my head. And, ooh, and I'll hear something. I or, you know, uh, someone I know doing a voice and think, can I do that voice? Can I, oh, can I do him? Mm, that's interesting. You know, so, you know, cause all right. Hi, I'm Owen Wilson. How are you? Okay, cool. All right. You know, it's, wait, in my own mind, wait, am I doing him or am I doing Wayne from Wayne's world? <laughs> all right. Excellent. Hi, I'm Wayne Campbell from Aurora, Illinois. Excellent. Swing. You know? Yeah. They all start running together. Yeah. Well, let's start, like you say, all of a sudden it's Owen Campbell. Yeah, it's Owen Campbell. Yeah. Wow. Um, Trump is obviously running your life right now. Yeah. Figuratively and literally on many different levels. It's crazy. Um, You said you started doing Trump in 2004. Was Mm -hmm. that, that was for a corporate gig or was that just... No, believe it or not, um, it was for, I got a call for a voiceover and, and and I have to give you a little bit of background. I've always been fascinated in Trump because I am a weird mix of being an actor and a business person, which you probably can tell from the sure. little tour that we did. Cause, uh, uh, but in the mid eighties, all of the big business people in the U S 
um, were starting to die off. The Astors and the Vanderbilts and this thing and that thing. Like John D. Rockefeller, I think, was still alive. Or, and there was nobody left. But these are the people who kind of built this country. And then Trump in 87, and I'd already been following him because he was the only one who was kind of standing out other than like Leona Helmsley. Uh-huh. Uh, but Trump, Trump, you know, wrote um, uh, Art of the Deal in 87. He, and he said, I'm the biggest I'm the biggest builder in New York City. So, but the thing was, he wasn't. He wasn't even like a hundredth at that time. But um, I actually have the book um, from 1987. My ex-wife at the time gave me the book and wrote a little <laughs> inscription in the book and said, I don't like him. I don't like what he stands for, but I know you wanted this book. <laughs> so, my first wife, Donna. And I just thought that was so funny to, to have it to this day. But he just kind of stood up and it was like, it's kind of like when you look to New York, like there's that person standing there. This is my city. What do you think? So, um, so I had always, you know, followed him and just thought he was interesting and just, an, you know, he's a fascinating guy. He's yeah. really a fascinating guy. And then in 1990, well, 89 and 90, I started working in Atlantic City. Right in his backyard. Right in his backyard. Yeah. And I actually, in 90, I did, Tony, we, we were doing Tony and Tina's wedding. We had spun off from New York. We were in Philadelphia. And when we were done in Philadelphia, I think we ran for like nine months. And we went to Atlantic City. So we worked in Atlantic City. And I'd already worked in Atlantic City before that, before Tony and Tina's wedding. So I was very aware of him from from right from the time he wrote the book, and then right after that, because that's when I started there. So there was he was kind of a kind of a, a weird presence in my life. Um, so we did the show there for a couple of months. Met him then. Uh, it was like an open secret. Like Marla Maples was living in the hotel. Um, it was very very interesting. Um, so then, you know, time goes by, uh, he's still in AC and you hear new, once you start working in Atlantic City, it's like working in Las Vegas, you kind of keep up with it. Like, oh, this is closing and this is opening. And, you know, there was always something happening. And then he left Havana and Havana was running the castle and I had a friend working at the castle. So you, he's just kind of there. He's kind mm-hmm. of a, a presence. And, and, and I was, you know, always toying with his voice and trying to figure out, you know, how to do it. And. Phil Hartman did him did him on SNL, and it was very interesting because SNL it was really he was really a New York kind of thing. It was very New York centric, but they did a couple of sketches, and then Daryl Hammond did a few sketches, and then 2004 was the first year of The Apprentice, or he would say The Apprentice, and the show blew up, and I got a call. And they said, you do a lot of voices. Do you do Donald Trump? This is for a voiceover. And it was like a Friday, and I told them, give me an hour. And I said, yes, I can do it. I ran out. And literally the the DVD, the whole first season came out. And I locked myself in the house and went to that audition on a Monday. And I got it. And it turned out it was for the boardroom game at Trump Taj Mahal. I okay. was supplying the voice. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, and that was the first time. And then I did a number of other voiceovers, car dealerships. It was really hot. And then um, one of the people who uh, I worked for a lot at the time said, are you doing Trump full, you know, top to bottom? And I said, no. And they said, what's it for? And it's about a month. They want Trump to do The Apprentice. I was like, I, I was like, uh, you take that, take it. They said, do you have any photos or anything? I was like, not 
right now. So I was always in New York, went to Bob Kelly. Bob Kelly did all the weeks for Saturday Night Live, all the weeks for all the Broadway shows. He was older by this time, but he had innovated so many things. I said, Bob, and he was a great guy. I just want everyone, Bob Kelly was an amazing guy, very supportive of actors. So I said, I, I need a Trump wig. And how much would it be? And he was like, $7,000. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's like a car. Um, and he said, do you have anything close? And he said, oh, actually, I have the Trump wig from the Visa commercial. I said, you have what? He goes, he just shot a Visa commercial where he has a Visa card that blows out of his head and ends up in a dumpster. And we had to sh- make one for his body double to go into the dumpster. And he walked me over to her and like, there's this wig. I'm like, oh, my God. He said, how much is this? And he said, well, I'll give it to you for five. I was like, that's still way too much. <laughs> but he let me do, you know, 450 installments. So I paid it off in pieces. <laughs> but that wig really did end up paying off itself. I was like one of the, in 2006, I was like one of the only people in the country doing Trump. Mm-hmm. And I had his wig. Yeah. From the Visa commercial. And I'd already done his voice, and I'd already met him, so I had this weird kind of like connection. And then, um, and then it's just one job after the next after the next. And what I always do is, if I can sell a character, how can I sell it more? Uh-huh. So on my website, it was Donald Trump roasts, Donald Trump national sales meetings, Donald Trump the Apprentice game, which is scalable. And I do that with all my. It doesn't matter if it's Columbo or Austin Powers, because as a business person, if I'm going to start doing this character, I need a way to sell him in multiple ways. Sure. So obviously, there's doing a walk around as him and all that. So I was constantly doing him, always doing him. Then in 2008, I booked a movie in L.A. And it's just been this nonstop. And I've made sure I've sold him because he is one of the few iconic business people mm-hmm. that's so identifiable. Sure, I could have done Bill Gates, but who cares? Right. Bill Gates. Yeah. You know, you have somebody like Trump who was known for if I had and saying the things that he said, which was totally unfiltered. So that's how I made sure I sold the character constantly. Mm-hmm. If we did a meeting for with with anybody, if we're doing Austin for the opening, I said, well, let's. How about Trump for the you know the the annual review on sales or something like that? They're like, that's great. Or how about the award show where he roasts the top uh, executives? So that's how I made sure he was constantly sold into these meetings and was out there. And so when when he announced, you can do this now. If you Google Donald Trump impersonator, I'm number one. Yeah, because I just had this really long runway mm-hmm. of doing him. So when he announced for you, was that just like, oh, Merry Christmas to me? No. And here's why. <laughs> and here's why. Because four years before, he was toying with it. Yeah. He was really toying with it. And he sticks his foot in. He pulls his foot out. He sticks his foot in. And he was actually here. Four years before the last election cycle, and he started dropping F-bombs at this uh, conservative woman's group, Republican and I remember, And a friend of mine from CNN had called me and said, he's pulling out today. NBC's pressuring him for another season or something like that. Right. And that when he started cursing, I was like, yeah, he's done. And he announced like a day later, I, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to run, but NBC, blah, blah, blah. So he was out. But when he came down the escalator this time, I was like... This does seem different. Mm-hmm. This seems pretty. Seems different, and it was within within like a week. 
of that when it was for real, that's when the phone started ringing. Mm-hmm. That day, though, everyone and their mother was reaching out to me. Right. It was really, it was crazy. Because every, everyone knew I'd, I'd done him and I've done him for so long. It was, but I was like, chill, chill, hold on, <laughs> hold on. Because I figured he was going to drop out. And then after the John McCain thing, I thought, Oh, wow. Well, that was a good run. We had a good month. It was a month. It was yeah. a month. About a month, everybody. Have a month. <laughs> and then his numbers went up. And I went, oh, this is great. Yeah. It's counter. He's counterintuitive. And that's when, it, I mean, then Conan called and then Trump cast called and then all these other things started happening. And it, it just kind of snowballed. And this was 2015. Mm-hmm. And then I just started crisscrossing the country doing events and meetings and TV stuff and ticketed events. And I could see overwhelmingly audiences were for Trump. They were for Trump. It was always two thirds, always two thirds. I would do stuff in L.A. and it was for Trump. I was like, well, that's weird. Doesn't that make sense? In the May of 2016, I did an, an event in New York, which should have been Clinton country. Mm-hmm. And it was overwhelmingly Trump. And that August, the BBC flew me to... Uh, D.C. for an interview outside the White House. Unfortunately, not inside the White House. <laughs> but but they said, who do you think will win? I said, Trump. Trump's going to win. He's going to win on a landslide. I was wrong about the landslide part, but he did win. And it's and it's, it's just been this amazing ride because I really thought um, I knew once he got in, once the policies took place, it would take a little bit of a hit because it's one thing when you don't have any when you don't have any policies behind you. It's it was great. Mm-hmm. Once the policies took place, things started getting a little a little tougher. But we've had these spikes, like after he was cleared and exonerated. Totally exonerated. <laughs> totally Completely exonerated. Exonerated. No obstruction. Um uh there was like a there was a bump. So there's always something mm-hmm. happening. And I got I and all these I I talked with showrunners, I was flown out to LA with for meetings with studio people. Um so many amazing things happened. And then two weeks ago, I was in Brussels in Belgium, and I spoke as Trump in front of the European Parliament. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, what the hell? And then um, I got a call through a buddy of mine. He said, do you know? And I'm fascinated by showrunners. And I got a call through a buddy in L.A. And he said, um, do you know who Jill Soloway is? And I said, Absolutely. She's the showrunner of Transparent. She goes, she'd like to talk to you. I was like, wow. And I got so many, you know, I've been on Conan. I met Conan. I've been on a show over 50 times. I was on Fox News with my buddy who I did theater with in the early 90s, Tom Shalhoub. Mm-hmm. On Red Eye, I was on um, Fox and Friends four different times. So, and I don't look at, uh, one of the things I've done in this process is I don't look at things politically anymore. Right. To me, it's just all entertainment. Right. <laughs> there's no left. There's no right. This is just all TV and film. And it's, you know, otherwise I would get, you know, because one of the things I try to do and I, I hopefully do in Totally Outrageous Brunch and all of my stuff is I want to appeal to the entire audience. I want to entertain the entire audience. I don't want to alienate anyone. Right. You know, I, I don't get why somebody would alienate half their audience before they walk out on stage. It doesn't make sense to me. So you did The View. And yeah. And that was their – that they did a – was it a, it was a Trump impersonator contest. It was a search for the world's best Trump impersonator for the nationals nationals. Okay. And then I won that. And, um, 
and then I went on to the internationals uh-huh. at Laugh Factory, and we had people from Iran, Mexico, Poland, New Zealand, Iran. It what was is, crazy. What is an Iranian Trump impersonator look and sound like? Well, he looks like an Iranian with a beard <laughs> um, and a very bad $25 toupee. Um, but it was the guy from New Zealand was 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 really good. Yeah. And um, it, it's amazing how to go from being one of the few people who's ever done him to there's a factory somewhere pumping out Trump impersonators. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Bad makeup, bad wigs, bad hats, bad, you know, hello, everybody, I'm Donald Trump, it's years. I'm like, oh, my God, you know? And then and then Baldwin gets Saturday Night Live. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> For the love of God! But he, you know, it, 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 what I find it infuriating about him is he's so funny. Yeah, he's so his Tony Bennett is so funny, but he's purposely doing a crappy Trump. Right, like on purpose, he's doing a ham-fisted. Uh, I don't know, you know. I'm like, oh. but it works obviously because you know a lot of comments I get on my. He, this guy's funny, but not as good as Alec Baldwin. I'm like, oh, oh. my god, <laughs> Jesus. Do you find with Trump that there's people that maybe they just don't get the joke? Oh yeah, I get it from both sides. I've gotten death threats, um, but there's people who on the left who who give me a hard time for doing him because they feel I'm promoting him, right? And then there's people on the right who who are like you know feel I'm teasing him and leave him, leave the president alone, you know, you know, hey, you liberal scumbag, blah blah blah. I'm like, uh, you don't know my. I've been on. It was like I have to explain to people. I've been on Fox News like fifty. Roger Ailes vetted me. It's like. Really? You know, <laughs> I just find it amazing. You, you, you can't please everybody. I've been very lucky, though. And if you've seen my performances, mm-hmm. you know, I've had people I've had people come up to me after Monday's Dark and performances here at SLS who say, like, I'm a big Trump supporter. And I thought this was great. And yeah. I'm going to tell my friends about it. And that's great. And I've had people walk up to me. I cannot stand Trump, but I like your Trump. And I did a security show out in Denver, and I had a, a Muslim woman come up to me who had the—is it the hijab? Or yeah, I never, yeah. never went. Is, yeah. So she came up to me before, and I was at the the booth for the company that hired me before I went into the main general session. She goes, "I don't like you, I don't like you," and I said, "You know, okay, good." And I said, "You're gonna love me. You're gonna love me. Make sure you're in the general session." And after the general session, she made a point to come back to the booth and says, "I like your Trump. I like your Trump." <laughs> Uh, but the other weird thing is, I have, especially before the election, I became like a, an avatar for him, where people would come up to me and say, I'm voting for you. I'm voting for you. They didn't say they're voting for Trump. They'd say mm-hmm. they're voting for me. And I did a SEMA, which is the big aftermarket show. Right. It was like 150,000 people. We had a line outside of my booth. And it was like confectional. People lined up. They, they, of course, they wanted a photo, but what they would tell me, I was just like... It was it was amazing. It was just absolutely amazing what people would say to me. And that was one of the indications that I thought he was going to win because I had people say, you know, I haven't let anybody know, but I'm voting for you. And I heard that over and over. And some of the other stuff, I had a woman say something to me once one time. It was I melted my brain. Um, she was like, you're a man. You're a man. That Obama, he's a big P word, you know. So I was, I was like, okay. <laughs> Oh, wow. I was like, of course, of course he is. He's a loser. Total loser. 
I, I was not to get political. And I, and I mean, as a Canadian, we just kind of sit back and go, you know, we eat our all dress chips and just watch the world burn happen, yeah. happening south of the border. And I remember being down here in the October before the election mm-hmm. and talking with some friends down here. And I was just like, what did, what are you, what are you people doing? Like, what is going on? And everyone's like, nah, it's, he's not going to win. And we're, and I, the whole I heard, time, yeah. the whole time I kept saying, you can't count out the crazy vote as yeah. I always like to say. Yeah. And, and then, you know, two months later I was back down here again, talking to my friends. I'm like, the shit did you people do? Like, what is, what, how? People and, were really, they were really frustrated. They were, and, and you know, it, it just shows you how, fr- you know, someone like Trump who just doesn't go by any rules. So he's not hemmed in mm-hmm. and he wasn't hemmed in on, on a voting record. Right. So he could say anything, but you know, I had a, October of 2016, I was with somebody from the Washington Post, from the New York Times. We were out to dinner and another political person. uh, And I said, he's going to win. And they're like, John, you're wrong. I said, he's going to win. And they said, you're you're saying that it's strictly anecdotal. And I said, I'm in front of 1,200 people, 3,000 people at a time. I said, you're I don't know who you're polling. But your polling's wrong because mm-hmm. I I sense it I I can tell and they were like ah, boy did they lay <laughs> 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 off but I, you know so but you know but it, it, so where do I go from here is kind of like the next question the good thing about Trump is people would say to me all the time like, what if he doesn't win I'm like great yeah even better yeah because he'll be on the sidelines bitching and moaning you know now it's. He's people are like we literally have had bookings where they would book me as Trump, and then two weeks later, yeah, um, HR is not allowing us to. Do you have another character? Yeah, luckily I have like thirty, so we you know we'll put in Leno or this character or Austin or you know Doctor Phil or something. Uh, But it's it's very it's very interesting how the wind blows. But even when I was in Brussels, people came up to me. You know, behind the scenes, and said, "I really like Trump." These are Europeans; like they, they know strong men. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Has uh, has doing Trump gotten you in trouble other than the death threats no. that you mentioned no. previously? No, I've I, uh, not at all, not at all. I've it's just been. I think I think one of the reasons is I don't come out. I, I'm I'm not staking a. I'm not saying I'm pro or I'm not saying I'm anti. I'm just do, as it, one of the things for me is I'm an actor. So I try to bring the character to life the way I was trained as an actor, which is you have to like the character. Uh-huh. If you don't like the person you're doing, it kind of creates an internal disconnect sure. and people can sense that. That's one of the things I, you know, with, with like with Alec Baldwin, you can say, you know, he hates him. He says it all the time. Right. So, but some of the other people who do, do Trump, it, you know, I want to make it as authentic as possible possible but not be pro or con so i've been very very um lucky in in that respect mm-hmm. you know i mean we get con- you know you can't help con- also, the funny thing is i remember when i put up an ozzy osbourne video and boy holy cow you think i had i got ripped apart on that one and it wasn't the impersonation it was just, oh could you man you're and the names that they called me i was like it was the first time i was really ever experienced the whole trolling thing over an aussie impression. over an aussie impression because he's kind of like a god so you know but i am amazed how people take things wrong and 
you know, you know, it's it's interesting. One person can say one thing, and it sets a premise which isn't is not connected to what you're seeing in a video. Sure. And that person, everyone answers that one individual. Like, he shouldn't do that because of X. Or he he should be allowed to do Trump because of X. Or You know what I mean? It's like, no, I'm not having a problem. No, I'm not being withheld from doing Trump. It's it's amazing how because there's no real talk back. Sure. You know, it, it's, it's there's a thing uh, working with Ricky Lacks on a project and we're doing, um, uh, it's called The Trump Show. And, on Facebook, so on Facebook Watch. And we've done a couple of different things and the response has been really amazing. And sometimes we might push it in one area and then people lose their minds. It's like, you have to take it as a whole. Right. <laughs> Don't, it can't just be one thing. You know, I just find it amazing how people are so touchy yeah. on these things. Like, it's comedy, folks. <laughs> I'm really not the president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take it easy. This isn't a policy statement. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned about, you know, the whole this is comedy because you see that so often. And I I'm not generally one to I don't want to invoke the, the snowflake clause. Right. But you see that people are offended by literally everything and and anything and everything, and everything, and everything anything. And, anything. And the funny thing is someone will make a comment. And because I follow this stuff, obviously, I'm in a very, I'm walking a very, it's like the Ra Somerset Magnum's razor's edge. I'm mm -hmm. literally walking the razor's edge. Um, but somebody will make a comment, a comedian or a, doesn't matter who it is. And sure. maybe comedian is not the best person to use. They'll make a comment. And one person who has 35 followers says, I can't believe you said that people who like cats that are overweight, and, you know, black day, blah, blah, blah. That thing catches fire mm -hmm. and like and that that gets goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and it's kind of like oh my god it's like, like every any if, if one single person's outraged mm -hmm. then everyone has to stand behind them and be outraged too yeah. there's a certain point where you've got to at least for comedians mm -hmm. not politicians elected officials you've got to give them some kind of a leeway you know like so and so's a drunk how dare you come down on people who are alcoholics it's like i didn't say it was not you know what i mean it's like it's like you, you there's no way to word stuff you know, you have to parse your words so much that they'll lose their comedic impact. Right. But there's plenty of stuff I've gone to put on Twitter and I thought, oh, yeah, <laughs> I better hold off on that. Because there's no way for me to control. If it's in a comedy club and you know this, even in comedy clubs, things have gotten out yeah. of control. But you can't help how someone interprets something. Right. Things have changed. And, and I get that. And you can't bash, you know, overweight people or this or, you know, there are legitimate things. But at some point, you if you constrict every avenue, there's no place to go comedically. Right. Yeah. You know, some of my my favorite. I'm a big fan of British comedy. Yeah. And I love guys like John Cleese who have come down hard on the whole comedy has to be politically correct right. thing. And guys like Ricky Gervais who... You know, Gervais's whole thing is F him. Right. You know, seriously, this is, if you don't like it, scroll past it, change the channel, be done. That's, right. that's, you know, if you don't like what I'm saying on my, on my Twitter, then F you too bad. Right. And, and, and conversely, and I love both of those guys and 
Monty Python was a big influence. But both of those guys have, have a huge infrastructure sure. of success where they can do, do that. And, yeah. you know, he took a lot of heat for the um, the Golden Globes. And, oh, yeah. You know, it's, oh, God, yeah. Funny's funny. I just ripped Robert Downey and Anna Hayes. And, and it, you know, hey. The thing is, if you're uh, uh, on the lower end, your career can be destroyed yeah. overnight. And, and I hate to, this is not the best example, but someone like Kathy Griffin, which I still cannot figure out what she was thinking with the decapitated mm-hmm. head. I was kind of like, what was your best outcome on that? Like, yeah. what were you thinking would be the <laughs> best thing that would happen from this? Right. Because you know you're going to infuriate people. Just infuriate them and upset them, and you know, and that becomes a chain reaction because there are people. You know, we all need to. One thing I can't stand is hypocrisy, and there's a lot of hypocrisy going on yes, right now. Yeah. So there are people who know that they 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 drew a line and they have to stand by that, and as well they should. I was like, what were you thinking? Yeah. Like, what was the where? And even as like, where is the funny part in this? Yeah. You know, it's I, I I'm always amazed. So there are real things going on, but there are other things that are fake, and there's a lot of fake outrage on both sides. I'm always amazed by it's like everybody's just gotta relax. If if a comedian, professional comedian's doing it, that's one thing. And then the other thing is you have people who've never stood in front of an audience, uh-huh. put in the time, doing stand up, performing anything, who are internet comedians. And who do say things and you're kind of like, uh, yeah, that wasn't too smart of an idea, pal. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't know where they're coming from. Right. But they have an enormous following. Mm-hmm. So we're in a strange time in that respect. Speaking of Twitter, I mean, Trump is the king of Twitter. Yeah. Every day that he tweets something, again, for you, is it just like, Merry Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, every speech he gives, he gave the um uh the the national con- the, the thing that he did in front of the green bush thing, like the, the windmill thing. Oh yeah, yeah. The windmill oh, my thing. God, that was a nine, yes. that was 1 hour and 90 minutes. His CPAC speech was 2 hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. And what I have to do cuz we do totally outrageous brunch every week, I update it every week because the ship has already sailed by in a week. Right. People don't even remember because it's like the yeah. next thing. It's it's like waves hitting a beach, hitting a beach. And then you've got the tweets, which thank God, you know, I do the tweets for Trumpcast and for um, Planet America because at least they're recorded. I, you know, like they're they're laid down in stone. Right. Comedically, because what I love to do is just bring them to life. But a lot of times you can tell if it's five o'clock in the morning, he's not happy. He didn't sleep that night. <laughs> You know, what is happening with the windmills? They're causing cancer and killing all the birds. Horrible windmills. And now we have to wear wooden shoes. <laughs> I don't want to live there. You know, it's like, it's just, it's, you know, it's just the logical. You start here and end here and it's going to be something incredibly funny. And this stuff's funny to begin with. Well, that's and I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's really at the point where you could just take his speeches and read them. Yeah. Like verbatim. Yeah. Without having to do it, any writing yourself it's true because he, he you know one of the things was and he had said this a long time ago and people don't like remember this he had said he wanted to be an actor he kind of wasn't sure where he was going to go because mm-hmm. he is a showman so he ended up you know working for his father but when you watch him do cpac when you watch him do these one these 90 minutes these are stand-up acts this is nothing to do with policy 
You know, he's talking the, the, when he said the other day, you know, you go down to the border. These people are crossing the border. They look like MMA fighters. They've got the tattoos. They're all built up. They're super strong. You think like, and then they show the families. Like, no, that's not even true. But it's funny. <laughs> you know, it's funny. He's making, he's, he's doing illusions, which a comedian does. He's alluding to something. He's building an image. I just think it's, it's, it's fascinating and, how he does it. And you've met people from the Trump camp. Like yeah, he, there's. I've seen photos on your Facebook. Oh and yeah, about Kellyanne, and yeah. you know, one of the things about being at Fox, I've gotten to meet a, a lot of those people. You know, and how do they take it? I mean, I, I well, Kellyanne was, was very, and, and and Trump knew who I was before. Uh, there's this weird story where he thought I died. It's kind of complicated, but Kellyanne, <laughs> <laughs> long story. Um, Kellyanne uh, was super sweet. She goes, "Oh my God, can I get a?" Uh, selfie with you because the president knows who you are because I'd already been on Fox countless times. Sure. So he was fully aware of who I was. So we had a great photo together and um, she was very nice. I I don't judge anybody by their TV personas or or what they everyone's got to do what they have to do. Sure. You know what I mean? It's too easy to hate somebody. Um, You know, but when you meet somebody in person, um, they they're they're very nice. I I did Trump's fifty fifth birthday. He's like he's like a charisma machine. Yeah, you know what I mean. He's he he was literally. We were at we were at the castle, and it was fifty fifth birthday, and I was hosting with him. I was doing Austin Powers, and he was literally outside the door, and you could feel his presence. I mean, that's like he was the king at the time. He had three casinos. He was making money, all that kind of stuff. It was just a fascinating. He's just a fascinating guy. And I've met like super wealthy people. I for the I did an unofficial uh, inaugural party in Boca Raton for one of Trump's friends. And at that event, we're like six billionaires. Mm-hmm. And I get to meet all these guys. And they were so nice. And I remember thinking like, that guy's a billionaire. Yeah. Guy's a, this guy is a billion you would know who these people if i said their names it was like oh my god you know what i mean it's like i'm i'm struggling i get you know at the supermarket should i get two jars of spaghetti sauce or one <laughs> you know well, okay we're gonna get one i'm gonna hold off yeah it's you no know? it's it's a generic brand mac and cheese yeah. this week yeah yeah because i've you know i've worked with a lot of millionaires because you work and live in new york but when you think someone's a billionaire it's like that's insane amount of money wow and they're super nice and they're very charismatic they're obviously smart people they've gotten to to where they are i just i just find it just amazing you do a lot of charity work too yeah which is awesome yeah um i you know anybody that follows you on twitter and on facebook has seen uh your photos going out and doing doing different charity events do you have any that are really close to you i i love um there's uh New Vista is here in Las Vegas, and I've done a lot with them. They deal with um, intellectually handicapped, uh, people with Down syndrome. They are kind of a campus where these kids and young adults, and actually some some older adults, who can live and function in in these small houses where they can be independent. And it's just such a wonderful organization. And um you could have this in other places in the country. You couldn't have it in New York and Philadelphia because it's it's great that they they lay them out. There's there's space is what I mean. There's, yeah. there's, not that there aren't these places there, but they can have space. Mm-hmm. Um, they are they're in a safe environment. They're in a outdoor environment in northern uh, in North Las Vegas. Uh, today I'm 
donating some time for the CASA Foundation, which is court-appointed special advocates mm-hmm. for uh, abused and uh, neglected kids, mm-hmm. which is which is a wonderful organization. So anytime anything comes up, um, and I and obviously you have to be careful. You just can't go to an organization. You have to you have to be vetted. Sure. Um, but everything we work for is is, is vetted in advance. My um, my girlfriend Michelle sits on um, boards of multiple organizations. Uh, there's a great organization here run by Mark Chinook called Mondays Dark. And yeah. what Mark has done is remarkable. And I've gotten to work for a bunch of different organizations. Um, he takes all the entertainers who are dark on Monday nights and they choose a charity. And it's so ch- chosen well in advance. And two Mondays a, a month. We go in and do a full show. Uh-huh. So I've gotten to do Trump and Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. And then that money, they raise at least 10 grand, like a minimum of 10 grand. Plus there's a silent auction. Uh, one of the things I discovered moving here is this is an incredibly philanthropic town. Uh-huh. People are really concerned about a lot of different things. And there's so many organizations. And it opened my eyes um, to these organizations that need not obviously they need money but they need awareness too that right. that, that, that they exist so it, whatever i can do and that the the organization organization has been vetted and they're for real <laughs> <laughs> don't want to get burned yeah uh, <laughs> you never know it might be dr evil's organization <laughs> enjoy baby yeah baby so, um why vegas and not la um that's a great question i was looking for i was in new york New Jersey, New York, back and forth. And I was doing a job in San Diego and I was flying home one day and we punched through the clouds at Newark and it was rainy, it was cold. And it was, I was like, why am I here again? (laughs) Why? And it's super expensive. And I, you know, I looked at, Orlando for like nine seconds and then looked at a couple other places. And of course LA came up and, and I had spent time in LA Mm -hmm. and I just, I just, it isn't a, appealing to me on a lot of levels um there's no place you can go where it's it's central you can't get to anything though i will say burbank is a great a great town but i looked at la and i had already spent some time there and then a friend of mine was connected here with cirque she was in the wardrobe department and she said what about las vegas and i was like really las vegas because i didn't see myself as a Las Vegas guy, so New Yorker, L.A. Sure. She said, you know, are you working here soon? Because I was, at that time, I'd probably be in town four or five times a year. I said, yeah. She goes, tack on a couple of extra days. And she showed me around, and like anything, like Bourbon Street and um, New Orleans, like she got me off the street. Yes, yeah. And I was, she showed me around and took me to restaurants and took me to places and took me out here to to henderson i was like oh this is a real town yeah with real people yeah and i made the move here and it's the single best move i've ever made this is an obviously an entertainment town but the entertainment community here welcomed welcomed me with open arms Mm -hmm. in new york everyone's great um they're, they're doing their own thing though there's support but not a lot you know you have your friends Los Angeles, they want to stick a knife in your back. You right. know what I mean? You show up an audition with your with your friend. How did you find out about this? Yeah, don't let anybody in here. You know what I mean? It's really <laughs> territorial. <laughs> you know, and but when you get here, because everyone's from somewhere else, and everyone has kind of a more diverse set of skills, everyone's really helpful. And I cannot believe the people that I've met here, the celebrities, because you end up. It's such a small town socially. It's such a small town geographically. Mm-hmm. That you just end up 
with these people. Yeah. If it sounded like Jerry Seinfeld, with these people. With these people. But it, it was, it, it's really that way. And I've met Rich Little and I got to meet Gordy Brown and I got to meet um, some of the other really great impersonators here in town because they'll be at a holiday party or a friend of a friend knows them and or somebody else is here in town shooting a movie and they're, hey, we're going, you know, so-and-so's in here in town. We want to bring you over to meet them. You're like, holy cow. Yeah. You know, and one of my friends here in town is, you know, like CEO of a corporation who happens, he happens to be from New York. And I probably wouldn't be friends with him in New York because we wouldn't run in the same circles. Right. But the fact that I lived in New York and he's from New York and we just became friends. So it's kind of Las Vegas is unique in that it kind of it's very it democratizes everything and levels everything. Right. You know, and it, it and it's great. And the guys who are producing Totally Outrageous Brunts, they're New Yorkers. And Michael Arlington, who's our who is our lead uh, in the show, he plays Esther. He's you know a well known comedian. Has worked all over the world. And Anne Martinez, who uh-huh. was in Baz, I'm working with her. So it's like holy cow! Like I got into the show with all these amazing people on a show on the strip. Uh-huh. You know, if it would take me decades to you know get to the equivalent in New York. Yeah, it's just because there's a there's so many people and there's so many roadblocks ahead of you. There's right. there's so many walls you have to get over here. It's like there it is much more supportive. And people introduced me to Michael early on in the process. Uh-huh. You know, where that may have definitely wouldn't happen in L.A. Yeah, um, it may have not happened in New York, but here. It is a small group and everyone wants everyone to succeed, which Mm -hmm. is pretty amazing. And that's why I think it's a very philanthropic town. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to perform. It's a lot of performers Mm -hmm. and they want to help. And uh, Nelson Sardelli, who was an actor, comedian, when I first got here, he knew that I did characters. He said, will you come out to the the Veterans Administration Hospital and perform for these guys? I was like, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that day, and I thought it was very loose. I thought that show was very loose. I went there and like major Las Vegas performers were there. I was like, holy cow. Like I should have dressed up a little. (laughs) I was, I should have prepared more because that was going to be very loose. And, and then, you know, subsequent years I was like, okay, I'm doing full makeup and doing the character. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. It's, it's interesting that you say that and everybody that I've talked to from this town. And as I've, I mean, I do, you know, anywhere between five and seven trips a year down here. And mm. I've gotten to know Mark and through Mark. Yeah. Mark's awesome. So many different people and super talented and a yes. great actor, great guy. Yeah. But you know, that he's a Broadway guy. Yeah. It's a Broadway. And his wife, Cheryl, another Broadway. I got, you know, I mentioned a, a buddy of mine was coming in to produce a show, a corporate show. And I said, she's great. You got to talk to her. And he ended up booking her. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, there, there's a lot of talent here. There's so much talent. And, and I, I mean, I, as a, as a chubby Canadian kid who just comes down here to vacation, uh, it's been interesting to get to know all these people and get to meet people and finding out, like you say, how everybody is so interconnected. Yeah. And and it's such a small universe. The only thing I've ever experienced even close to that, I worked in radio for almost 20 years and Canadian radio, it's like everybody knows everybody. Yeah. So same thing, you know, you're, you're, you really, it's this incestuous little group yeah. of people. And yeah, like everybody's so friendly and everybody's so genuine and everybody's so just amazing. Yeah. And, and so welcoming. And, and as, like I say, as an outsider that just comes down and it, it's now it's like every time I'm coming down, I'm getting together with these people yeah. and going out and they've been able to expand my horizons too as a, a tourist. Um, 
going off the strip. And yeah, there's a away, lot. Of, there's you know? much more here than, yeah. than meets the eye. Yeah. But you know, the, the thing is about it being a small town and everyone truly is nice because if you're, if you turn out to be a jerk or you screw, screw anybody here, you're done. Yeah. It's too small. Yeah. It's too small. And that's someone did, someone just got blacklisted for, for good reason. And it was just one of these things where it's like, wow, because if it was New York or LA or in Chicago, wouldn't matter they would just kind of float out into another group you right. can't do that here it's so interconnected the entertainers know the actors and the actors know the singers and the singers know all the producers and the producers know know everybody and we all know the guys who run the showrooms mm-hmm. you know what i mean we know the people we know people from ka we know this and it's 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 very like you said, it's incestuous and it's kind of interlocking. So it hel- it almost holds you to a higher standard. Right. That you 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 if you are a supportive person, you want to be more supportive. If someone's in the hospital, you want to make sure you visit them because it's 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 that small. You don't want to. It's it's kind of an external pressure. Right. <laughs> you know. But I'm sure you know, like Chris Phillips, Zoe Bowie, and yeah. I knew his I knew his his wife first, and we became friendly because she's like a very political person, and um, then I got to meet him, and then. It's just it, it, it's really cool, and I also belong to a um, you know through someone like Nelson Sodelli. Like the um, have you been to the Italian American Club? No. Oh my God, you've got to go there and see a show. You've got to go there and see a show. It's great shows, great audiences, yeah. and it's on Sahara. And it's when you're there, you feel like you're back east or right. Chicago or someone like somewhere like that because great entertainment, but just great great crowds. Let's talk about uh, Esther Goldberg's Totally Outrageous Brunch. This is your first Vegas show? It's my first Vegas show. And yeah. it's been a great experience? It's been an incredible experience. Um, SLS has been amazing. Our producers have been great. Michael had this vision for this show, which was essentially a variety show. But to have some kind of a connective tissue that, that brought it all together. And uh, we've been able to do that. We've got you know great support from the hotel. We have a great band. Dennis Blair's in our band. Aaron Fuller. Um, but I wanted you know I had mentioned Ann Martinez, who's been in like so many production shows here, who yeah. is an amazing singer, mm-hmm. who's an amazing actress, who's an amazing comedian, who's an amazing aerialist. She's also our director. She's a great director. She knows music inside and out. We have Michael and April who are the other two aerialists in the show. We have uh, Jeffrey who plays, can't explain exactly what he does because it's, it's kind of a kind of a cool character. He's just, a, he's, he's a singer in the show and he does some physical elements. Um, and then we have uh, Matteo uh, from, from, from France. And he does this amazing air, uh, not aerial, but, um, acrobatic, uh, gymnastic yeah. set in the show. So you've got comedy, you've got music, you've got, um, gymnastics, you've got acrobatics, you've got all of this stuff in the show and it all ties together around Esther, you know, and Michael is hilarious as this character and does improv as the character Trump and she interact because you find out they had a, a history together back in the 70s. Right. So we, it's, it's all pulls together beautifully, and, and there's great, you know, really good food. So I'm excited to be in this room where Monique performs and Eddie Griffin performs, and, uh-huh. you know, we're doing our show. We've gotten great reviews, and it's been really been really solid, you know. And it's nice to have, to have a show that you can consistently go to week after week after week. You know? Well, and it's nice to see new shows coming up in Vegas, especially with, the last few years has just been, I don't want to use the term bloodbath because that sounds terrible, yeah. but with the number of shows that have 
shut down oh. or closed or shows that were big shows like Baz that, yeah. you know, really had a, a, a big, you know, a, a decent following. Yeah. And, you and know, a name. Like, and Baz it, yeah. is a name. And, you know, like Rock of Ages that went Venetian to right. over to the Rio and, and you know, just the... And and all the little shows that have opened and closed and opened and closed yeah. and all these different things. So it's great to see a property investing in a show and, you know, really promoting it, actively promoting right. it. And people are coming out and the crowds, it sounds like the crowds are good. The crowds are good. And, you know, the thing is, you mentioned those shows closing. The, the show just closed at the Excalibur. Oh, the um, Fuer, uh, yeah, Forza, I, Forza I, Bronte. It's a great yeah. show. Yeah. It's a, I really, I love that show. And I had seen it in New York like 12 years ago where it was kind of in a different form, but it was essentially the same. But the thing is like, what do Las Vegas audiences want? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, we're, we're lucky right now. We're giving it to them in a variety show. But I don't like when shows close. Um, a lot of people work really, really hard. Uh, you, that show's a little different because it came in from outside. We're lucky with Esther Goldberg because it's, essentially it's an organic show. It's created here and produced here. Right. You know, Michael had done the Paul Lynn show here before. But, you know... Shows come up here organically and they don't make it for whatever reason or they do. But it's like, what do these audiences want? Now, obviously, you create the show. You want to get it out there. It's dense. There's, you know, there's a lot. You get off the plane. There's a lot of advertising. Yes. So yeah. unless you, you know, you get off the plane, you know, you know, Celine's going to be here. or Jerry Seinfeld's filling in or Reba's going to be here. You know, and you know, all the Cirque shows because they're kind of brand crushers across the board. You know, the Carrot Top is here because he's been here for a long time and has a great following. But what do you give an audience? You know, what, 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 how do you break through? Mm-hmm. I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm wondering myself, how do you make a show a long running show in this town? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and so. that's, I, I've, I, my wife and I have been like, we've been to the big shows. We've been to Cirque shows. We, you know, went to Baz when it was here and, you know, the big production shows. But what we're finding now is we really like those smaller, more intimate shows. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more fun to be, you know, when and I guess because we're here enough, so it's nice to be able to arrive here without really having a plan and just going, okay, what do we want to go see? Yeah, and you know, you go jump online, go through a website and look and see, or just you know through the property listings to see what's what's happening and what's playing, or even just the talent in this city is so amazing to just be able to go for a walk at night and pop in and out of lounges. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and get blown away by some of the the performances. It's just amazing. Yeah, my friend um, Sarah Hester Ross does um, dueling pianos. Yeah, different. She's incredible and and really funny. Like she yes. could she could be an actress. Yeah, but here you have her musical abilities and her piano abilities and this encyclopedic memory of, of all these songs. And and when you go, and I'm sure you sat in at the Paris where they do do dueling yeah. pianos and some of the other places too. Um, that you're like this is so much fun yeah it's so much fun it, it's great yeah you know and i there are some a lot of great lounge acts and you have somebody like zoe bowie chris is so entertaining mm-hmm. so entertaining well and being you know? able to just wander into you know cleopatra's barge yeah uh, david perico string group right. and oh my god like one night my wife and i were out here and it was the same thing somebody said have you been there yet no you need to go yeah and so that's kind of the where I'm at now with this, like I say, the big productions and these massive productions are great and fun, but I would much rather go and see a smaller production. Where they're going to talk to you. Yeah. Interact with you. Did yeah. you see um, Cocktail Cabaret? No. When it was, that was a great show. Super tough. Dan, Daniel Emmett was in that. He okay. went on to like 
he was in the finals of America's Got Talent. Okay, yeah. And it was it it was insane. Like people were just wanting to. We you know before the he started on that we had seen the show because we know him and we know some of the other people in the cast and it was it was just it's, it's these are like mega talented people yeah you know and the the guy you know the the band is incredible and they're right there they're like literally right in front of you yeah. and they're talking to you like the next song that's coming up yeah john i i just want to say i mean thank you oh my this, pleasure. this has been fantastic <laughs> Um, to come in and, like you say, see the the, the operation, right? right. And, the, uh, com- the command center see, here in Las Vegas. See how the the sausage is made, so <laughs> to speak. I mean, it's, you know, you, tremendous sausage, <laughs> the best, uh, only the best, only the best. Believe me, believe me. You took, I mean, you took me through everything, and it's it's been it's been fantastic to to chat and to talk, and I really appreciate it. Oh, great. All right, man. thanks, man. Hey, thank We're you. We're shaking hands, folks. Just so for, you know, for the listeners, we just shook hands. <laughs> Don't forget, John D. Domenico's Trump Show can be seen on Facebook Watch at Fake Trump Show. You can listen to John as Trump on Slate.com's Trumpcast. Catch his streaming special, Fake News, A Trump Story, on Amazon Prime. And if you're in Vegas and you want to see John live, head to Esther Goldberg's Totally Outrageous Brunch. It goes every Saturday and Sunday in the Sayers Club at the SLS, and you can get your tickets at TotallyOutrageousBrunch.com. That pretty much wraps things up for this episode of the show. As always, if you've got feedback or comments about this episode of the show, or you've got Vegas-related questions, feel free to get in touch via social media at JeffDoesVegas or email me directly at Jeff at WalkerNewMedia.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment a new episode is uploaded. And make sure to check out JeffDoesVegas.com for show archives, the audience survey, and info on the Jeff Does Vegas patron program. Thanks again. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode 18 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Mm-hmm.